Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour Voice Remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox Voice Remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. I'm your host, Andrew Brandt. Hope you enjoyed the two weeks previous with David Falk talking about Michael Jordan. The last dance is over, at least for us, live watching. Now moves to Netflix, the 10-part docuseries about Michael Jordan and the last dance of that team is over. So really hope you enjoyed David Falk, parts one and two, the rolling interview. So much insight that he has into Michael Jordan and the representation business basketball in itself. We're going to move on to something different in a minute. We're presented, as always, by Bet Online. They're your online sportsbook experts. Of course, always the exclusive partner of Podcast One Sportsnet. Use that promo code Podcast One, Bet Online. Interesting guest for you today because the obsession in the early part of the quarantine this spring has been Netflix's Tiger King. I think something like 100 million people downloaded it, watched at least one episode. And while we're all quarantined and it's cute and seeing the tigers and seeing the baby cubs and seeing that, I guess, likable, at least empathetic character of Tiger, of Joe Exotic and Joe Maldonado uh, passage, there's more to it. And I saw an article about an animal rights lawyer named Carney Ann Nasser. She's currently teaching at Michigan State University School of Law. She is a foremost expert, one of four people teaching this subject as a law professor in the world. She has all the information on Joe Exotic, in fact, brought the case against him. And she knows the truth behind him and the truth, which more in a positive light, about Carol Baskin and the Tiger Sanctuary. But it's a deep dive into these roadside zoos and the, the puppy mills for tigers, as she calls them. I saw the interview with her out there, and I said, this is someone that can really bring light to what we've heard about and read about and seen during this quarantine period, which is the, the Joe Exotic, which is the Tiger King. So this is a, a real insight, pulling back out the curtain on what really happens with the world behind the Tiger King. I thought she's a fascinating interview. Without further ado, animal rights lawyer, Carney Ann Nassar. So welcome to the podcast, Carney Ann Nassar. Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and get into how this all actually relates to sports. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been quite a quarantine, as everybody knows. I know everyone's feeling like they want to get out. It's been enough. Hopefully, we've turned a corner on this. But early in the national stay-at-home order, it seemed like everyone was gravitating to the Netflix, I guess you'd call it a docuseries, called The Tiger King. 
And as I said, it's this mullet-wearing roadside zookeeper uh, known as Joe Exotic, and everyone got into it, and it was kind of an entertaining way to pass the time and to sort of debate it in social media. But you sort of look deeper into it, and then you get into issues which are so much on your radar about this person specifically we'll talk about, and then wildlife tracking in general. So you're now an animal law professor at Michigan State, but you were familiar with this Joe Exotic way before this Netflix 15 minutes of fame that he's had. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm more than familiar. I'm the attorney who pitched the wildlife trafficking case against him to the Department of Justice and to the right. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So the, you know, part of his conviction, several years of his conviction is the result of an investigation that was going on for years before the murder for hire um, ever even happened. So this was all, the prosecution against Joe was in the works ever since um, I noticed a red flag in one of the transfers of big cats from a failing facility up in northern Louisiana to his roadside zoo in Oklahoma. And I took the evidence to federal prosecutors in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. They ultimately found there was sufficient reason to open an investigation, but felt like the case would be better situated up in Oklahoma, which had been my hope all along. Um, and so they made a collateral request up to federal prosecutors in Oklahoma City, and they started their investigation. And here we are now, and Joe is going to be spending the next 22 years in federal prison. So how, when you mention these inconsistencies in the paperwork about, about this shuttered facility now in northern Louisiana, what exactly what he, was it doing? Was it what we saw? on the series and the way he treated these cats and took away their young? Well, honestly, if what we showed what he actually did to animals, like, and tried to put that content on social media, it would get banned because the type of physical mm. abuse of animals that was going on was so grotesque. Um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture had four open investigations into him. This is an agency that gets repeatedly criticized by its own internal auditors for failing to do its job. But the situation at Joe's place was so bad that they had not one, not two, not three, but four open investigations for his chronic failure to meet almost the bare minimum standards of care for animals. Um, and there were 23 tiger cubs who died in rapid succession in his care. And that's just a little bit of the, of the problem. I mean, as, as the uh, prosecutors proved throughout the case, um, he was killing tigers in violation of the Federal Endangered Species Act in order to make space for more. Um, and instead of seeking to get permits to purchase and sell tigers, which he never would have met the criteria to obtain from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you have to show, like, the, the Endangered Species Act at this point has banned the commercial trade in tigers. Nobody can import them. Every single tiger here in the United States is captive bred. Um, but you're, you're supposed to seek a permit if you want to do anything that's otherwise prohibited under the Endangered Species Act, but it has to relate back to some sort of benefit to the species at large. 
the way that people like Joe get around that, and this is what federal prosecutors also proved, is that they falsify paperwork and they say that they're making donations of cats or that the cats are only being sent somewhere temporarily for exhibition, when in reality what they're doing is purchasing and selling in cash and then falsifying the paperwork. So that was the other set of, of um, crimes for which he was convicted. And that's the type of, that's what I had noticed in the transfer of cats from um, the facility in Louisiana. Joe had come down, um, you know, we all we all know that, that LSU has a, tiger, a live tiger mascot here right. um, in Baton Rouge. But there also for a long time was a tiger in a gas station in Louisiana named Tony. And Tony's owner had been found in violation of state law. The permit he had to keep that cat was um, invalidated. And we were ready when I was working at the Animal Legal Defense Fund to come in, take Tony to a huge sanctuary in Colorado, beautiful accredited sanctuary on 700 acres. Um, and in sort of true Louisiana political fashion, rather than comply with the court's order, comply with the law, Tony's owner went to his state legislator and asked him to introduce something that would give him a retroactive exemption from the law. And in that legislative process, he brought Joe Exotic down to Louisiana to be his expert witness as to why it's awesome to have tigers in gas stations. Um, and that was Joe's introduction to the folks in northern Louisiana who were also at the hearing. Um, and they were, they were failing. They were having a lot of problems complying with um, the Federal Animal Welfare Act. They were shooting lions instead of providing them with veterinary care if it was too expensive. Um, and then Joe came in and took a bunch of cats uh, back into Oklahoma. So that was really sort of how this all kicked off. And that transfer wasn't particularly unique. I mean, this is, as the judge said at the sentencing hearing that I attended for Joe in January of this year, you know, Joe was involved in systematic trafficking of endangered species. Like, he was the epicenter of a lot of tiger trafficking mm. in the United States that reaches its tentacles into virtually every state in the country. So, um, you know, this was, he, he was charged and convicted for just a very, very small fraction of his federal crimes. I saw an, a note from your interview with, that you gave to the ABA Journal that really sort of struck me. You said, and I quote you, roadside zoos operate like puppy mills for big cats. Female cats are used to breed and spend their lives confined to tiny cages. Their offspring are removed immediately upon birth or shortly thereafter so that the process can begin again. And it did sort of make me recall a scene in The Tiger King where a female cat gave birth and within seconds they were using some tool to pry away that baby under the, uh, under the fence. And then it just really made me think. So <laughs> this is, this is happening. And you say these roadside zoos, I mean, are there a lot of them beyond Joe exotic or, or is this, is this a uh, business out there that people like you are trying to, prevent from operating? Yeah, I mean, any facility that allows you to take a photo or a bottle feed or have, you know, cuddle time with tiger, there's some 
facilities that even offer swim with tigers. Even um, Doc Antle was depicted in, in Tiger King. Um, any of these facilities are involved in that premature maternal separation where babies are forcibly yanked away from their mothers and then the female mm -hmm. tiger is impregnated again and the whole cycle continues to repeat itself. Um, and they're involved in supporting the exotic pet trade. When these cats get too big, too expensive to be used for cub petting, then we see, you know, Joe Exotic is shooting them. Um, or they get dumped into in the, to the pet trade in terms of, like, for people who are looking for exotic pets. You know, you know Shaquille O'Neal owns tigers in Florida. Um, there are a lot of people who think that it's really cool. But you can't get a tiger from a reputable facility. No AZA accredited zoo, no accredited sanctuary is going to supply tigers as pets. But a tiger costs $10,000 a year just to feed. And under the Federal Animal Welfare Act, a tiger can only be used for cub petting, which, you know, each of these cub petting sessions can generate, you know, 60 to over, you know, $1,000 just for one session. And records have shown that these facilities will use these cubs who should be in quiet, dark areas with their mothers. Um, they have, you know, they, their immune systems haven't even fully developed yet, um, are used up to 60 times a day. So, you know, you can do the math. This is extremely lucrative for these roadside zoos. But once they hit that about 12-week mark, then it becomes a violation of the Federal Animal Welfare Act to offer public contact. Too dangerous for the public. Um, and so that's when they just become a financial drain. So you'll see that a lot of times, the tigers who become very readily available in the pet trade are, you know, four months old, six months old, and they're, they're no longer useful. You can get a tiger cub who's about, you know, six months old for less than a lot of people pay for their dog, you know, wow. a couple hundred bucks, even free. Um, and we don't have meaningful laws in place in the United States to track where these cats are going. Um, it's a very, you know, the existing law is fraught with a lot of loopholes, and the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has not overseen the transfers of these cats um, as it should be doing, and so now we have this sort of black hole that a lot of these tigers have fallen into. Um, they've, been, they've been bred rapidly, like I said, puppy mill style, um, for cub petting for the, this, this lucrative business. I mean, one tiger cub can potentially yield up to a million dollars in revenue for a roadside zoo. So, you know, they are huge money makers, but then they get too big and too expensive and they got to send them somewhere. Um, and that's when they fall in the black hole. And who is responsible for enforcing these? You talked about, you talk a lot about the Animal Welfare Act. Is it at a state level? Is it at a federal level? Are they doing enough? It seems like it's pretty lax, and this is where I know you get involved. But who is trying to uh, deal with this puppy mill style of breeding tigers? Who's out there trying to enforce this patchwork of laws? So there are there are two primary federal laws that pertain to the um, the use of tigers in roadside zoos and cub petting. The first one is the Federal Animal Welfare Act that I mentioned. 
it's enforced by the U.S. Department of Agriculture or, you know, ostensibly enforced. And the Animal Welfare Act, it doesn't, it doesn't have tiger-specific regulations, so it's not like it has requirements that um, relate to the specific complex needs of a big cat. It's, it's regulations like making sure animals have water, food, space to stand up, turn around, and lie down. They see a vet every now and then. So the, the regulations, the, they're really like very low threshold regulations. There are only about 100 USDA inspectors for over 5,000 regulated entities. And so these facilities are inspected periodically, um, and they're supposed to be written up um, if they are in violation of any of these particular regulations. However, the USDA has, has, been, has chronically failed at effectively enforcing the Animal Welfare Act and has defaulted to what they call teachable moments where they pretty much tell exhibitors um, and other regulated entities, just stop doing this or we're gonna tell you to stop doing it again, rather than issuing citations, which they have the authority to do or instituting administrative enforcement action, um, including civil penalties or license revocations. So, the USDA is, it really has blood on its hands. In fact, it has suspended Joe Exotic's license and imposed a $20,000 penalty on him several years ago and said specifically that if he violated the Animal Welfare Act again, that his license would be automatically and permanently revoked. And he was in chronic violation of the Animal mm -hmm. Welfare Act, as numerous inspections have shown, but the USDA failed to make good on its threat, and as a consequence, many, many animals died at his hands. So the USDA has blood on its hands with Joe and with a number of other facilities um, because of its really lack, lack of interest in effectively enforcing the Animal Welfare Act, which was passed for the purpose of, you know, quote, ensuring the humane care and treatment of animals. Um, and that's sadly not been the case. Um, the other primary law is the Federal Endangered Species Act, which is enforced by the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And tigers have been listed under the ESA since it was first passed in the early 1970s. Um, tigers are listed at the species level. That means that all subspecies or even hybrids, or what we call generic tigers, have equal protection from harmful treatment, um, they're prohibited from being purchased or sold. Um, they, they're, they can't be used for commercial purposes um, unless there is some compelling reason that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will approve. Um, but this, too, has gaping loopholes. The way that Fish and Wildlife Service has been interpreting the what we call enhancement requirement um, and this is why you've seen, you know, this is why circuses like Ringling Brothers were able to take tigers to Canada and Mexico and out of the country and then bring them back um, was because U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, instead of saying, you know what, using tigers for a circus is a commercial purpose, it has nothing to do with conservation, what they were doing is operating under a pay-to-play system where they tell Ringling Brothers or another circus, you know what, you will give you your permit to export and re-import these cats to be used in circuses out of the country. 
but we just need to see that you've cut a check to some kind of conservation initiative. So that's, you know, there, there are gaping loopholes in the way that um, both of these federal laws have been enforced by the relevant agencies. And then when you get to the state level, it's a, it's a total patchwork. We still have four states in, in our country that don't have any laws relating to the private ownership of dangerous wild animals, including big cats. So in Nevada, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Alabama, you might have to get a license to own a dog, but you don't have to do anything if you want a tiger. So there's not going to be anyone looking over your shoulder there. So we have this patchwork system, lots of loopholes in existing federal law, lack of apparent will by um, a lot of federal agency and enforcement officials to, to do their job effectively. And so here we are, where we have a bigger supply of tigers in the United States than are left in the wild. All of these tigers, except for the 250 or so in AVA, Association of Zoos and Aquariums Managed Breeding Programs, um, are generic tigers who have no conservation value. All the white tigers are generic. All the tigers in roadside zoos and circuses are generic. Um, and they serve no conservation purpose. So this whole argument that roadside zoos love to make to the public in order to dupe well-meaning people into thinking that going to see them and going to pay to play with them is a good thing and they're doing something for conservation, just the fact that these cats exist is, is not in the interest of conservation because they've been crossbred and frequently to the detriment of their own health. Um, white tigers come with serious congenital defects a lot of the time. Um, so they're creating this supply of tigers that doesn't represent any wild population, all for entertainment. Why do you think this lack of oversight? Is it something aesthetic? Is it something related to the, I don't know what the word is, cuteness of these animals that we sort of, there's sort of a, a lax enforcement of this. And as you said, it may be more owners to own a dog than a tiger in some states. What do you think's behind this? So there are a few things here. So on the federal level, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has, has made it clear through, since the Federal Animal Welfare Act was, was passed, that it didn't want to be the agency that had to enforce um, that act or promulgate rules um, and then enforce those rules. So, so that has been reflected in the agency's lackluster enforcement of the Federal Animal Welfare Act for decades. Um, you know, it's gotten worse recently. Um, they're scaling back enforcement even more. Um, they were refusing to respond to FOIA requests for for several years recently. Um, and with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, their position between 1998 and 2016 was that it was better for tigers if they removed their oversight of generic tigers. That so they said, we're just going to focus on purebred tigers. Where, well, while it still would have been a violation, a criminal violation of the animal, I'm sorry, of the Endangered Species Act to kill a generic tiger. They, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said, you know what, we're just not going to look at the transfers as closely. We're not going to um, exercise oversight of these generic tigers as much. And so between 1998 and 2016, you had this framework of, that really enabled 
this black hole. So the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and their lack of interest in, in looking after the transfers coupled with the U.S. Department of Agriculture allowing public contact, any public contact whatsoever, created a perfect storm where there was an incentive to breed these cats in great numbers, knowing that there wouldn't be very much oversight in their transfers at any point in the process. So that's been, that's been what's happening on the federal level. Then on the state level, you see a lot of uh, state legislators who are, who are duped by the roadside zoos who say, you know what, you don't need to oversee our activity because we're already federally licensed and inspected. Well, what they don't—they're not telling—is that getting a USDA license is the threshold minimum to operating legally. It doesn't mean you have some sort of gold star or seal of approval. It costs thirty dollars to apply for a USDA license, um, and then you're inspected once a year. That's three hundred and sixty-four days where there's no eyes on what's going on in your operation. So. Mm. Sadly, a lot of a lot of states have just kind of punted on it and um, just washed their hands of doing anything really meaningful to deal with it with the issue, which is then creates a burden on localities. I mean, our law enforcement officers—they're not trained on dangerous animal encounters. Their 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 jobs are dangerous enough as it is without having to deal with tiger escapes and attacks and all of these things that um, that happen on you know way too way too regularly um so that, that's that's sort of the broad you know thirty thousand foot view of it yeah and as you've talked about the as we've talked about here the tiger king made this joe exotic look out out to be kind of a in some ways laughable but in other ways a sympathetic character trying to invoke some empathy for him and have used detailed here, it's, he's more than, he's not that at all, right? I mean, he's a, I think you called him a monster who deserves to be in prison yeah. for what he's doing, what he has done. And so I want you to comment on that and also talk about your own as you've been talking about this and all the Tiger King love that's out there. I've heard you've gotten some threats and you've gotten uh, some gross kind of feedback on this for a while. So talk about that. Yeah, so, I mean, Joe Exotic, during his sentencing, the judge, we're in Oklahoma, the Trump-appointed judge, you know, so we're not in the Ninth Circuit, right? This is, this is you know, deep red territory here. Um, and the judge said to Joe, he said, you know, you're a master manipulator. And, you know, he called his activity, you know, um, systematic trafficking. And then... He made the point that there will be no cir- circumstances when and if he gets out of prison um, that Joe will be able to come near, let alone own and exhibit any protected species in the future. That doesn't happen. A judge does not go that far unless there is extremely compelling evidence that this person should not be allowed around animals again. And I mean, that, that evidence is voluminous. We have undercover investigations and video footage of the disgusting abuse of animals. Um, there's even the USDA has written up inspection reports that have detailed grotesque violations of the Federal Animal Welfare Act. Um, 
And we have this evidence of, of Joe being willing to sell these animals to anyone for the right price. These are all just money makers for him. This is mm-hmm. somebody who is manipulating people in order to think he's some sort of victim in this situation. You know, I've seen the paperwork of, a, for example, a liger cub. This is a cat that shouldn't exist, right? This is a, a lion, um, the product of a lion, a male lion and a female tiger. Uh, this cub was sold by Joe to a woman in Texas for $6,800. She bought the, the cat, um, brought the cat home, and this cat was being kept illegally in violation of a local law, so she had to give up the cub. I called the sanctuary that, I mean, this cat was fortunate to end up actually in a reputable sanctuary in Texas, which is, you know, not not usually the case for a lot of these cats. But I called the sanctuary to find out whatever happened to that liger. And they said the cat has so many immunodeficiencies and health problems when she arrived that she died very, very shortly after her arrival. And, you know, this is just, but, you know, Joe got to laugh all the way to the bank with his 6,800 bucks. Mm. And that's just, you know, another day in the life of Joe. Um, He is, he has been, you know, long, he has long been at the center of the effort to, or at least, you know, one of the biggest targets for really taking down this whole disgusting breed and dump cycle um, that roadside zoos are engaged in, where abuse is the rule, um, not the exception. And so, you know, I mean, even in even in Tiger King, um, Joe's ex-husband was talking about, Don Finlay, was talking about taking tigers into at least 38 different states. Um, you know, this, this is a guy who was operating a virtual revolving door for big cats and, you know, selling to anyone who would, who would pay the price. So, um, and, and what I tell people who don't understand, and this is where I call, I call Tiger King a reality show, because if it had been, if it really had been a docu-series or a documentary, then the filmmakers would have made it extremely clear what the difference is between a roadside zoo like Joe and an accredited sanctuary like Big Cat Rescue and the 14 other EVAS accredited sanctuaries in the United States. And, you know, if you ask any sanctuary founder, whether it's Carol Baskin or any of the other ones who I know all of them, I'm on the board of advisors for the Big Cat Sanctuary Alliance, they will tell you their number one goal is to become irrelevant and go out of business. Roadside zoo owner like Joe, Doc Antle, um, Jeff Lowe, they, their whole purpose is to continue to be able to churn a profit on the backs of these cats. Um, so uh, there's a fundamental philosophical difference. You ask anybody in a sanctuary setting, you know, how big is, is a big enough enclosure? They'll say, no, no captive enclosure is big enough for a tiger wide-ranging apex predator, but we're only here because the roadside zoos exist and they're engaged in breed and dump. And so this is why the sanctuaries are all on the front lines of fighting for the Big Cat Public Safety Act, which would ban the private ownership of big cats in all 50 states. So establish the uniformity of law that's currently lacking 
and also prohibit the USDA licensed exhibitors, like the roadside zoos, from offering any public contact. And when you when you make the public contact illegal, you really you really put a, a nail in the coffin for this whole industry because that is what's incentivizing the rapid breeding because it's just so lucrative. The photo ops are just so lucrative. And maybe I haven't been to these places, but you're saying they're in gas stations out there too as well? That was, yeah, there's one. That tiger has since passed away. But there are roadside zoos all across the United States. Um, you know, sadly, this is a problem with um, sports mascots. The, live, the, the schools that have big cats as sports mascots, um, whether yeah. we're talking about LSU or University of Memphis or um, University of Northern Alabama, you know, people always talk to me, you know, I live in Louisiana, so they're like, but Mike has a $2 million habitat. Like, how, why do you have any complaints? The habitats are not the issue. The issue is that these schools are legitimizing the whole roadside zoo industry by doing business with them, because that's where mm. these cats are coming from. And because no, no accredited zoo or sanctuary is going to supply a cat to be used as a mascot. Um, so that's the problem. It's like you have to peel back the, the curtain and see this is, they're, they're legitimizing. In fact, LSU got not the current mic, but the previous mic from a facility called Great Cats of Indiana, which was so bad that the state, um, state and federal agencies came in to shut it down, which very rarely happens. There's so much latitude for um, for roadside zoos, but it was horrible. So um, that's just, you know, that's just a, one small example. But uh, I know that you asked me about threats that, that I've received. And, you know, just, just on a macro level, um, what people may be surprised to learn about Joe, if their only exposure was in Tiger King, is that, you know, he has, he made threats to use his firearms against anybody who came to a big cat stakeholder meeting that the USDA was hosting a few years ago. And to the point that the USDA actually sent him a letter banning um, him from coming to the meeting. And also there were certain individuals for whom the threat was so credible that they actually had to have bodyguards during that mm. meeting um, for fear that he would show up. His favorite refrain when anybody is pointing the finger at him and, sh and making him come face to face with the evidence of his abuse and illegal conduct is to accuse him of having killed somebody or killed an animal. You know, I know a lot of people who've been on the receiving end of those accusations from Joe. So all of this is par for the course with this guy who, as the judge said, is a master manipulator. And it, sadly, I think that the makers of Tiger King helped Joe manipulate a large percentage of the 100 million viewers who watched the, the reality show. But, you know, I've, I've received threats from big cat owners. Um, I've, you know, been on the receiving end of physical intimidation, um, you know, get lots of hate mail. But, you know, I sort of feel like we can judge the difference that we're making by the enemies that we have. And so this is, this is just part of the work that we do. It's part and parcel of it. Um, it's, and it's indicative of 
what that community is like. You know, you can't you can't claim to be some sort of conservation organization and then at the same time be involved in um, physical threats against other people. So, um, yeah, but that's, I mean, I don't know yeah. anybody who hasn't been threatened, sued by, um, by a big cat owner to try to squash them from speaking out. Um, it's, it's pretty much par for the course. And I saw you said you're one of four, only four full-time animal law professors in the world right now and actually going to teach a course uh, about the Tiger King, a seminar, a law school seminar. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that's what I, right now I am uh, designing a course that would take students on a journey through all of the complex issues of law that, you know, Joe was such a great case study. I mean, we have wildlife trafficking, criminal endangered species act violations, intellectual property um, law violations. Um, we have um, the murder for hire. There are so many different things going on here, and it's such a good, um, it's such a good real life tangible case to put the pieces together to understand how this industry works. Um, and how and how the Endangered Species Act and the Lacey Act, um, which is the trafficking law, um, all work and what the interplay is between the Federal Animal Welfare Act and these other federal laws, as well as the deficiencies in state laws, which enable helped enable Joe to transfer as, as many of those cats out of state as he did. So, um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm designing that. It's also a CLE class, too. I just mm -hmm. did. Um, a CLE for Simpson Thatcher um, about Tiger King and the law, which was a lot of fun. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's compelling. Um, you know, the characters aren't particularly that interesting to me anymore. It's, you know, I tell people, you know, for me living in New Orleans, you know, the 40th or 50th time that you are in the French quarter and you see the person who's sprayed their body from head to toe in gold <laughs> right. and is standing on a chair singing. It's not, it doesn't become that the wow factor goes away. Right. So th that's the same thing with Joe. I mean, we've all been dealing with Joe and his whole cast of characters for, uh, for me, it's been a decade. So, you know, I watched Tiger King and, and I forced myself to finish the series because I knew I'd get questions about it. But on my first attempt to watch it, I fell asleep in the middle of the second episode because it's just not that <laughs> interesting to me. Yeah, I know how you feel. I mean, I, when I watch some of these uh, sports movies, I'm not like everyone else that can just take it in for what it is, a nice story that usually involves some kind of love interest and some kind of uh, happy ending. I just sort of get frustrated because that's not how it usually works. I've worked for teams. I've worked for players. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah. So I know what you're going through. Yeah. And, and as 100 million people are talking about this and thinking he's such an empathetic character, I, I can only imagine you getting wanting to pull your hair out. Yeah, it, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful about the Big Cat Public Safety Act. There's also another right. piece of federal legislation pending called the Animal Welfare Enforcement Improvement Act, and that would establish a citizen suit provision in the Federal Animal Welfare Act. Right now, there is no citizen suit provision. So, um, you know, the, the USDA, really, there's not a whole lot that we can do as animal lawyers to um, address 
the, the chronic failure, really, by the USDA to, to do its job and enforce the act. Whereas under the Endangered Species Act, there is a citizen suit provision. And this is why we've seen a lot of cases recently that are giving a lot of hope um, where judges in federal courts in Florida and in Indiana and in Iowa have found that forcing tigers to live in substandard enclosures, forcibly removing them from their mothers right after birth, like we saw in Tiger King, um, subjecting them to, um, you know, substandard diets and depriving them of veterinary care violate the Endangered Species Act. So this is great. We have some really good federal court precedent that's emerging right now. I mean, as we speak, literally, that the case against Wildlife in Need and Tim Stark, who is one of the characters in um, Tiger King, is, is happening right now. And uh, there was a, a facility in Florida called Dade City Wild Things that you saw for swim with tigers experiences, and that's been shut down through an Endangered uh, Species Act citizen suit. So these are some of the creative tools that animal lawyers are using to help remedy this problem while the federal agencies are sort of asleep at the wheel. That's great. I mean, it's good to hear that you're already having some impact. You've had impact, and it continues. And in a weird way, I know you know this as well as anyone, Joe Exotic has given you a platform. <laughs> uh, it's the way I found out about you, and it's a way you can use your great knowledge to help these these cats. It's nice that, you know, it, it it's not nice that what happened has brought this to your attention, which is way before the show, but it's nice that the platform has been raised so much where people like you can provide what's really going on behind these TV series. Yeah, I thank you. I've had to caution um, the the animal, the well-meaning animal advocates who are still really upset about Tiger King because the content was so focused on the Jerry Springer soap opera type of right. content, um, rather than on the real issue, which is the tigers and the mistreatment of tigers and the trafficking of tigers. That it's it's a waste of time and a wasted opportunity to get too far down into that. And, and just complaining about what Tiger King didn't do. This is an opportunity. We have captured the attention of um, a lot of people who are now at least on some level aware that there's somewhat of a tiger issue in the United <laughs> States. And it's up to me and my colleagues to redirect the attention to having a, a productive conversation about what the real issues are, how to tell a bona fide sanctuary from a roadside zoo, particularly now, while a lot of these roadside zoos are going to go under, they're not going to be able to sustain through, you know, their lack of, of funds from right. photo ops and all these things closed um, through through um, stay in place orders. And it's our it's our reputable sanctuaries that are going to start getting stretched really thin. So, you know, there's a lot of important um, conversations to be had. I've been having those conversations with other experts, investigative journalists, sanctuary founders um, on my podcast, Tiger Talk. And, um, you know, there's, I think, a lot of good that's going to come out of it, even though my personal opinion is that the makers of Tiger King were just deliberately misleading. You know, my understanding is that they told Carol and Howard Baskin that they were going to make blackfish for tigers and that they told Joe and his people that they were making a, an expose of Carol. Um, and that's just not how documentaries get made. You know, um, storylines don't write themselves. Um, they, this was 
what one of my friends who is a award-winning documentary filmmaker said mm-hmm. uh, deliberately misleading. So yeah. um, that being said, I, I believe her that um, there's an opportunity and lesson and learning experience with everything, no matter, you know, how, how bad it, it first seems. So I've you know, been trying to use this as an opportunity to have more conversations and, and raise these issues. And, you know, one of the conversations that I've been having actually is trying to communicate with the major sports leagues with, um, you know, starting with uh, major league baseball and with the NFL about this uptick in their athletes going to do these bottle feeding sessions. Um, mm. You know, sadly, my, my team, the San Francisco Giants, uh, the pitcher, um, Trevor Gott, was photographed with a lion who's clearly over the age limit for public contact with his hands in the lion's mouth um, at Six Flags Discovery Kingdom out in Vallejo, California, in apparent violation of both the Federal Animal Welfare Act and in my personal opinion, you know, and you I could, you know, debate this, but, you know, violation of the, the player rules are not supposed to even like skateboard. Right. Let alone Hazardous conditions. That's right. So like this is, you know, this is sort of where it gets into um, the conversations that I've been having on this issue with, uh, with, uh, or at least about like the um, sports um, teams and, and their kind of lack of oversight there. It doesn't appear that there's a lot of will by the teams or leagues to tell players hands off the lions and tigers, which is a little surprising to me. I would say that's, that's true. I think with everything else they're worried about, they're not worried about their hands and tigers, but I understand that concern that you have. And that's, that's not a picture you want to see as a former executive with a team, I would not want to see my player with his hands in a tiger, especially uh, a pitcher. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sort of defies, it defies logic. Um, you know, Odell Beckham Jr. visited, was photographed at Doc Antle's roadside zoo, playing with a lion, playing with chimpanzee back in 2019. Um, and, you know, I'm not calling him out or blaming him. I'm just saying like these this is happening and sadly when um kids see their favorite players having these interactions it really promotes these interactions and helps feed this problem so my hope is that um even though the leagues didn't respond to my correspondence on this issue before tiger king came out maybe i'll go back and revisit it or at least maybe independently after you know, Tiger King has raised some of these issues that they will um, revisit the conversation with their, their players um, so that we don't see this dangerous activity, um, but also um, activity that really promotes a very, very disgusting uh, subculture in the United States of the exotic pet trade. Carney, and before I let you go, you did mention you had a little bit of a passion beyond uh, what we're talking about now in your sport. Uh, you're a bit of an F1 junkie, are you? I am a total Formula One junkie, um, <laughs> and I do sports myself. I um, do Porsche uh, autocross, so oh, I you know, I love I love F1. Um, I go to at least one F1 race a year. I mean, we're, hopefully that will be the case again this year. We'll see. The season has you know I feel like I get new updates about F1 every 
every day practically. But um, yeah, it's really, I think, interesting time in F1. They're establishing a uh, budget cap for the very first time, which will be interesting to see if it establishes the uh, the parity between the constructors that it's you know ostensibly supposed to do. Um, you know, for people who are familiar with F1, there's a very big discrepancy in the operating budget between like a smaller team like Williams and Mercedes or Ferrari. So um, it's it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out once we finally get back to having an F1 season again. Yeah, I mean, it's taken a page from team sports that I cover with salary caps, trying to put everyone on a level playing field and encourage some real competitive balance, make it all about the athletic talent rather than the money. So, yeah, it's coming into F1 as well. Yeah, and and, in F1, it has to operate a little differently because, like, so the cost cap in F1 only applies to expenditures on car performance. It doesn't apply to drivers. So in a way, the cars are being treated like the players. Right. <laughs> um, and so it will be, um, yeah, I'll be very interested to see how that will compare to a salary cap or, and Major League Baseball has what, the competitive balance tax? Is that how they operate? Luxury so, tax, yeah, for the overspending teams have yeah. to pay back to the lower spending right. teams, yeah. Or yeah. lower revenue teams, so, right. Well, we'll hope for all sports back soon. It <laughs> seems to be some hopeful right, signs I know. as That's I speak to you today. We, you know, I've been, I'm in a bunch of these um, F1 uh, discussion groups on Facebook, and, uh, you know, we're all talking about, you know, uh, so Sebastian Vettel is leaving Ferrari, and um, Carlos Sainz is going to Ferrari, and then my favorite driver, Daniel Ricciardo, is going to go hop over to McLaren, and, you know, what's, what's going to happen at Renault and like all these different, you know, discussions and like pontificating on what's good, what's not and all this stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I just want a season. I honestly, at this point, I'll take a season <laughs> regardless of who's driving for whom. I just want to see some racing. I think you speak for everyone out there. Just want to, whether, whatever sport, they just want a season. <laughs> and like I said, yeah. there's some hopeful signs uh, as we hear about Texas and California kind of opening up so we'll see but carney and this was a real pleasure and i'm as glad as anyone that the tiger king as flawed as it was gave you a platform to talk about this important issue that doesn't get enough attention and hopefully now will you've been really enlightening i really appreciate you coming on the podcast oh thanks so much for having me it was really fun i'm so glad that you reached out because you know, with, uh, you know, I mean, going back many years, I, I was a legal intern at the Oakland Raiders and um, <laughs> That's crazy. Had sports law from Tulane. So it's not the, it's not this, you know, big leap as it might seem for, for us to have a sports and Tiger related conversation. Yeah. And, you know, people have, have told me admiringly, which I'm flattered that you're one of the most interesting law professors that they know, but I think you you got you've taught me. <laughs> I mean, this is really interesting for a law professor to be talking about. So, all these law students that are worried about just sitting in cases on business corporations and taxation here, you not only have sports law, but you have animal welfare law professors like yourself. So, I think it's really fascinating. Oh, 
thank you. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's never boring. I can say that about this line of work. <laughs> it's, it's never boring. <laughs> and tell us again where you have your own podcast and how people can reach out to you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So my podcast is called Tiger Talk with Carney and Nasser. It's on right now. It's on Anchor and on Spotify. Um, okay. And then they can, you know, I'm on all the social platforms. Um, and I, I also um, have a website. It's just carneyannasser.com. Great. Thanks again for being on the podcast. We'll have you back soon. I would love that. Thank you so much. Really hope you enjoyed that. That's a different look for the business of sports, but one that I thought I'd take you inside that world. And thankfully, or maybe not so thankfully, we're all exposed to that, uh, what's really behind Joe Exotic, the Tiger King, and everything that goes on with these roadside zoos, which are, again, puppy mills for big cats. We're presented, as always, by Bet Online. You might think there's nothing to bet on. You would be wrong. And it's sports is coming back. We have all the signs now, but you can bet on everything with Bet Online: entertainment betting, Big Brother, stock prices, Nathan's hot dog eating contest, live daily Madden simulations, and of course, you've got online casino, poker, blackjack. As they're bringing Vegas right to you, Bet Online. Visit our good friends there. Take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. You get that free account with the promo code Podcast One. Again, don't forget Podcast One, all caps. Your sign-up bonus, bet online, your online sportsbook experts. And that'll do it for this week's edition, a different kind of edition on the Business of Sports podcast about the world behind the Tiger game. Appreciate those who follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. Appreciate my music by my son Sam that you hear under this, my producer extraordinaire Brian Neal. Always appreciate Apple Podcasts and rankings. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.